0: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to Condensed Histories. What we do on this podcast is we take a piece of pop culture. It might be a movie a TV show, it might be music, it might be a game of some description, and we reveal how either accidentally or deliberately, just onto the surface, there's real history that we can learn things from. I was particularly proud of the time when I managed to do half an hour on a three-minute ABBA song, and actually pretty much everything you've heard so far is stuff that I really like. It might be Last of the Mohicans, or His Dark Materials, or ABBA. And you can see there's a lot of variety there. But do you know what? Don't love everything. Because nobody loves everything. And sometimes things that are very popular are things that some people don't like. And that's fine. But in a way, sometimes poking at things a little bit, deconstructing them a little bit, can be fun. So this time round... I'm going to talk to you about the movie Love Actually. And Love Actually, I think for people of a certain age, holds a special place in their heart. It was a huge hit when it first came out in 2003. I know we're approaching 20 years since this film came out. And it's not without its problems. Even at the time when I was watching it, I wasn't sitting there thinking, this is amazing. But it's built up quite the head of steam. Sometimes people sort of make it to be, and it is obviously set around Christmas. I mean, it specifically has sort of freeze frames sort of flashing up five weeks till Christmas, four weeks to Christmas, etc., etc. So those things are there, but you can watch it any time of the year because I'm going to say this, I'm going to give it credit where credit's due. The opening scene and the very last scene actually have almost nothing to do with the movie. There's this voiceover at the beginning by Hugh Grant and he talks about how if you want to see love just go to the arrivals lounge of an airport. Whenever I get gloomy with the state of the world I think about the arrivals gate at Heathrow airport. Now this is all set in Britain specifically London so he's talking about Heathrow which is a very big airport in london but it would be true almost anywhere in the world and they have footage of clearly real people these aren't actors i don't know i, I presume they must have had sort of like sign off saying w- can we use this images of you but just seeing these people Just hugging each other and kissing each other is just a wonderful, warm experience. It could be, you know, little kids going up to their grandparents, it could be partners hugging each other, it could be father, son, whatever. The point is, there is just this joy of seeing loved ones that you haven't seen, even for like a week or so. So that's wonderful. And indeed, the very last shots as the credits start rolling is you see that all again and parts of the movie are set around Heathrow Airport as well. So anyway, the the point is, those are lovely. Those are warm. And there is a very good point saying, look, you know, in the world today, we, we talk about fear. And what's interesting, 2003, we're on the edges of the internet. The, the internet, certainly by 2003, email by 2003 is a thing. Whether or not we're at the point of social media, we can argue that. I believe that Facebook came out in 2004, for example. So it isn't quite the internet that we know it today, but certainly the point about how There's a lot of anger and frustration out there. And this is one of the problems of the modern world. It's brought us closer together, but it's also led to faster divisions and disinformation and people getting furious at each other across the world over a point of view. So yeah, I mean, those things I think are valid. And look, any movie that's going to explore different forms of love, like a long-term marriage that's kind of become a bit stale, or first love, or unrequited love, or familial love. That's not a bad thing. The other thing that's worth pointing out that this is written and directed by Richard Curtis, who is a comedy icon in Britain. He was involved in Blackadder. Black Adder, started talking to yourself, I see Yes. It's the only sure of intelligent conversation upstart crow and he's the man behind four weddings and a funeral which brought the world sort of hugh grant in in all his glory and all his foppish upper middle class floppy haired glory and notting hill as well and if you like that's the first problem because love actually even while i was watching it for the first time in the cinema i was sitting there thinking this is his greatest hits and a greatest hits album while it might be initially pleasing because it's got all the tunes that you like on it, quite often, at least in the olden days, people built albums to sort of tell a story or to have a certain tone. And if you just yank three songs out of that album and slap them with the three songs from the next album, and so in the end you got like nine, twelve 12 great cracking tunes... they're almost taken out of context it's not quite the same thing as listening to the original album that they were living in and same here this is a hodgepodge of loosely interwoven people there are people who are conveniently each other's brothers and sisters or oh we go to the same school and that's how we know each other these people are loosely built together and another thing credit where credit's due a lot of these little stories about love you know have a good beginning middle and end and if you're fitting together six or seven of these sort of types of stories these are you know it's quite a skill to be able to pack into 2 hours but at the same time because there isn't a specific hero or heroine it's a little harder to sort of root for them and clearly some of them are better than others then we have the problem of Movies as a whole portraying love and romance because what's in a movie quite often is seen as sort of earnest and oh look at them still trying to win the person's hand and make them swoon in an actual real setting we'd call them a stalker or obsessive behavior sort of dangerous tendencies take for example the story of Colin in this film which is easily the worst one Colin is basically works in the post room of this building of a number of other characters work in the same organization. And he's going around and he's sort of a young man in his 20s and all the young women, he's sort of going, hi, how are you doing? Will you be my wife? And all this kind of stuff. And it's going to be cheeky and funny. Or today we would say that that's inappropriate behavior. He would be up in front of HR. You know, there's the Me Too movement. A woman has a right to just sit there and work without being harassed because she happens to be a young, attractive woman. You know, that's not what she's doing at that moment in time. She's actually copywriting or whatever. So Colin is what we would term now a sex pest. Why do we want Colin to win? I don't know. And Colin's entire story is he can get nowhere with British women, so he decides completely arbitrarily that his British accent will definitely get him a girl in America. And so he decides to throw everything away and go to America. Okay, fine. And he goes to America. He goes to Milwaukee, which is quite funny. And he arrives in a bar, which is clearly made by a British set designer, presumably in Britain, because in the background, there are just random sports pennants. None of them are from Milwaukee. So it's just like, this looks American. Quick, stick this up in a bar. And they have three very attractive young female American actresses who meet him in the bar. And all three of them ask him to go back to their place oh and there's a fourth one she's the really hot one apparently turning up too so colin has a terrible plan and it works out better than anybody would ever expect it to immediately there is no character development and colin does not deserve this happiness also this is not a thing you know there are are more subtle stories in this but this was almost written by a fever dream of a 15 year old it, it it makes no realistic sense. Wait, all of it is of course fantastical but this is the bit that's particularly weird. The other one is the Martin Freeman bit which is quite often taken out in other scenes because this is the bit that really makes it 15 rated my wife tried showing it to the kids and I went I don't think this is a good idea. It's rated 15 I seem to remember there's some nudity in this and also there's a lot of bad language in this but indeed Martin Freeman and this young lady, I've forgotten her name she's Stacy and Gavin and Stacey, Apollo to the actress there, the wonderfully smiley, upbeat Welsh lady. (laughs) It's Joanna Page. And anyway, the two of them are completely naked, simulating sex because they're trying to get the lighting of a sex scene and rather get the actors in, they just need some body doubles so they can get the lighting right. And it's about as graphic as it gets. It's utterly gratuitous. The gag on this one is basically, while the two of them are being fabulously intimate with each other, but obviously for the purposes of a movie, Martin Freeman's trying to pick up the courage to ask her out. And it's sort of like how can he not do this when all this other stuff's happening? I'm trying to be as vague and ungraphic as possible, but believe it's quite graphic in the movie and turns out that they get together and they even get engaged in the space of five weeks there's a lot of very weird sped up stuff in all movies not just love actually but in all romance movies people can meet and three weeks later they're proposing, again, this would be seen as incredibly unhealthy in the real world. It's sort of like, you are really rushing into this. You you haven't spent any time together. And yes, we're, we're all well aware that the first few weeks of a relationship are incredibly exciting and incredibly dazzling and overwhelming and you can barely eat and all that other awful stuff, but that's not a relationship. That's just the beginning bit. Maybe, maybe wait a while. I mean, I still remember. I I have been together with the lady who is now my wife. We've been together for more than 20 years. We've been married for 15, 16 years. And I still remember our first date and how the two of us were in the spaghetti house just down the road from Trafalgar Square. And I could barely eat. I was so adrenalized with what was going on. And she was the same and funnily enough I'm now more than capable of eating in front of my wife it's just not a problem 20 years on late. I mean I would have starved to death if it was still an issue so yeah your hormones and chemistry calms down and in Captain Corelli's mandolin there's the beautiful speech by the father to the young couple as they're getting married which is used in a lot of weddings or at least was sort of 10-15 years ago about how there's a difference between being in love and love and this sort of fire Uh, burns out, but then the embers continue, and the two trees that when you look at them once they've been together for many years, you realise their roots are intertwined. Uh, And it's a beautiful... I'm not doing it justice at all. When you fall in love, it is a temporary madness. It erupts like an earthquake and then it subsides. And when it subsides, you have to make a decision. You have to work out whether your roots... Have become so entwined together that it is inconceivable that you should ever part. Because this is what love is. That's the reality, but of course you've got two hours to tell the story, so of course they're going to meet, have some problems, fall in love, and have a happily ever after in a film. The problem with this one is there are about six or seven happy ever afters. So a little bit more on the, on the moaning, and this is where I'm going to start, start edging towards some history stuff, because believe me, there is history in this, is the fact that you've also got this weird thing with this writer and he's going to France and he's got to write his new book and the woman who's going to be looking after him she's Portuguese now he can barely speak any well he can speak perfect English we can barely speak any French but he can't speak any Portuguese she can't speak any French and it, you know hilarity ensues and he kind of falls in love with her again this is another problematic one the two of them have no language in common She's basically being his cleaner. He's sitting there writing away, and it's like that's not the start of a healthy relationship. Now, later on, she learns English, and you can see him hilariously working out how to learn Portuguese, and... Yes, okay, so fine, they're both putting some effort in, but you have no idea if you've got much in common. They don't even sort of kiss, really, until he goes back and declares himself. And he's gonna, you know, literally, the first conversation they have in a mutual language, He is declaring that he wants to get married to her, which is insane, it's not healthy, okay? But the one bit that I thought, this is just the laziest writing ever of Richard Curtis is he's sitting there typing out his new book, Again, this is 2003. By then, people had laptops. Also, it seems to me a lot of writers like to write about writers being left alone in a cottage somewhere or in a suite in a hotel. You ask any modern writer, I mean, look, maybe that's the way Ernest Hemingway wrote, okay, but that's gone the way of the 1930s. Nowadays, People sit in a coffee shop on their laptop or during the pandemic at home on a laptop. A laptop's great. You can edit it straight away. You don't, you never would use a typewriter nowadays. And also with a a laptop, you can email bits. It's much easier to edit. You can obviously check on the internet, certain facts. You might want to double check when you're writing stuff. I'm saying this as a guy who's written more than 12 books, okay? So there's just no way, but for hilarity purposes, he's sitting by the edge of a lake, typing this stuff out. She walks over, picks up the rock that's got about 50 pages on it, blows it, the wind blows it into the water. And then, like I say, this really lazy comedy scene where she says something, Portuguese he can't understand and then he hilariously says in English either the same thing or the contrary thing like for example he says in English oh I hope there aren't any eels in here and she says stop splashing around you will wake up all the eels ha 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 and also she's splashing around trying to pick up all these pages because she realizes you know it's her mistake and she's sort of saying i hope this is worth it and he turns around and goes, no there's no need to do it it's not exactly shakespeare this joke is played five or six times in the space of two minutes if that and it's like it's the same gag over and over again it was okay the first time after a while it's like did you not have anything else to say in this scene so yeah look Is Richard Curtis a more famous, successful writer than me? Absolutely. But you've got to take a cold, hard look at his very impressive list of achievements as both a writer and director. And I'm sorry, Love Actually is not his shining star, although it is certainly one of his most successful movies. So that writer, who's played by Colin Firth, by the way, so you've got maximum posh, wibbly wobbliness and sort of getting difficulty to say things a bit like what i'm doing right now with both hugh grant and colin is maximum randomness and fluff and fumbling of words between the two of them sort of posh and awkward between the two of them hugh grant by the way just very briefly he's the prime minister i'll come back to him in a minute so You've got Colin Firth, and he's clearly in France. They make a very big point about he's in France. But this woman is Portuguese. And as I said, later on, he goes back to her, and everybody around him is Portuguese. And it's very clear. They make a point of showing you that he's arrived in Marseille Airport. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but Marseille is part of France. Why is everybody speaking Portuguese? Why is her family all Portuguese? Well, actually, there's a reason for it. And this is where I can bring in a bit of history for you. Because it turns out Marseille does have a very large Portuguese community. How did the Portuguese end up in Marseille? And the answer is, surprisingly, to do with the World Wars. During World War I, to cut a very long bloody story short... The German expansion, the German capturing of France happened pretty much on the edges of France. There was a tiny sliver of Belgium that was still being fought over where the trench network went over. And then the vast majority of the trench network went across the very easterly part of France. Not much of France was actually captured, but undeniably part of France was captured. So it wasn't like a lot of this fighting was happening in France slash Germany. you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. So France needed us all the help it could get to try and stop this incredibly bloody carnage. France was virtually bled dry of its own feinty men. And so it was very important that Britain was involved there too. It was also important to take the pressure off the Western Front by having these titanic clashes in the east where Germany and Austro-Hungary were invading the Russian Empire. That's the overall view. France needed men. They needed men in the trenches. Now, Portugal is not a hugely populous country, but they sent over 80,000 fighting men, to France in World War I, and they fought hard. And this was remembered by France, so that after World War II, in the early 1950s, France again had been somewhat devastated and perhaps had a little bit of a problem with population. The French men had died in the war, so Portuguese people came back again. And their contribution, to France in the 20th century led to various like Portuguese generals and references to Portugal turning up in certain street names, even in places like Paris. And it just so happened that Marseille is a major southerly city in France and isn't a million miles away, or let's say it's a lot closer to Portugal than Paris is. So a lot of Portuguese ended up staying there to help in the rebuilding of France after World War II, but also their fathers might well have been fighting for France, generation earlier so because of that you've got this weird disconnect and and if you look if you look at london you've got chinatown and things like that and there are lots of little communities so actually what they're showing in love actually is a real thing but it's never explained so that i've checked this online there's a lot of internet articles and questions going why is everybody speaking portuguese when it's clearly france And the fact that they make no chance to ever reference that is a problem. So I said I'd mention the Prime Minister. Let's move on to him then, shall we? The year is 2003 when this is coming out. And it is very much a rebuttal to Tony Blair. Education, education, and education. Because the other thing that this obliquely references is the war on terror. There was a heavy criticism of Tony Blair. Look. Let's perhaps go back. I don't know how much you guys know about Tony Blair one way or the other, but the Tory party, the Conservatives, were in power from 1979 to 1997, nearly 20 years. A whole generation like me grew up not really knowing anything other than a Conservative government. Michael Foote was the leader of the Labour Party and he just didn't catch the imagination. He was basically that generation's version of Jeremy Corbyn. Now these people had good ideas. I don't think Jeremy Corbyn has a bad bone in his body, but you don't win elections by purely appealing to the party faithful. Anybody who needs to win a, an election in the democracy has to reach more than 50%. And no party has 50% of the population. So the problem with Jeremy Corbyn, the problem with Michael Foote and other Labour leaders is they did a good job of keeping the Labour Party happy, but the, if you like, the middle didn't trust them, just thought, thought they were too radical and things were going all right under a Conservative government. And again, t- kind of doesn't matter what government we're talking about, but if the economy's doing okay, if people feel safe and secure, they invariably vote for the incumbent rather than the next person because it's risky don't know what's going to happen so there you go a little bit of democratic politicking there for you so tony blair spent years trying to make the labor party electable he even for a time referred to it as new labor it's not old labor which is a bit scary and linked to the unions We spent a lot of time courting the mass media so that you'd get favorable articles about them in traditionally conservative newspapers And in 1997, Tony Blair won by a landslide. It was an obliteration of the Conservative Party, and John Major at that time was the Prime Minister. So Tony Blair came in with a mandate, and within a couple of months of his election victory, Princess Diana had died in that car crash in France. And the royal family did a terrible job of sort of explaining it and and grieving with the nation. They were following very traditional royal protocols, which wasn't what the country wanted to see. And I encourage you to have a look at it online. But Tony Blair's speech, there's no way he could have prepared for the event of Diana's death. That, that was not something that anybody was expecting. But his speech basically in a car park next to a church with a bunch of microphones duct taped together is one of the great political speeches of the late 20th century. In the sense that there's no politics there. He does a great job of saying everything that Britain needed to hear. And Tony Blair was so popular at the beginning. But then on September the 11th, 2001, there was the terrorist attacks in America. And within months after that, there was a massive NATO force, including France, Canada, America, obviously, and Britain, in Afghanistan. This made sense, because clearly the man behind it all, Osama bin Laden, was in Afghanistan. He was supported by this incredibly radical, violent Islamic fundamentals called the Taliban. So it made sense to go there and attack. When, when you've just had a devastation in your country, the similar levels of Pearl Harbor, it's not just going to be brushed off like, well, that's not very nice. Action had to be taken. And I think a lot of people forget that the invasion of Afghanistan, people were uneasy about, but people got understood. But then in 2003, the year this film was being made, we then have the war in Iraq. And there were all these lies from the George W. Bush government in America about how Saddam Hussein was going to have chemical weapons ready to go in 24 hours, that kind of thing. And there was this hunt for these weapons of mass destruction after the victories in Iraq. And it turned out he didn't have any. And it also turned out that Saddam Hussein had nothing to do with Osama bin Laden, which makes complete sense if you look into the story and politics behind it all. So the whole thing was a lie. And the big mistake that Tony Blair made is while he'd done a great job of understanding Britain's consciousness and what, you know, how Britain felt, you know, with that Diana speech, and on many occasions early on, in 2003, he basically went to war because America asked him to, and was now fighting in Iraq. And huge crowds were in the streets of Britain. I remember the banner saying, make tea, not war, which I particularly like, very British. There suddenly there are hundreds of thousands of people protesting this move. What's this got to do? Because Hugh Grant goes out of his way, there is specific scenes with the American president where Britain's just not gonna do it your way anymore. There are two references to the fact like, well, you'll find we're very different to the previous guy. We uh, got what we came for. And our special relationship is still very special. And Prime Minister? I love that word, relationship. covers all manner of sins, doesn't it? I fear that this has become a bad relationship. A relationship based on the President taking exactly what he wants and casually ignoring all those things that really matter to um, Britain. Now, this is still during Blair's premiership as Prime Minister of Great Britain. So, you know, it is sort of cocking a snoot. And, and Hugh Grant at that time perhaps was a little bit like Tony Blair. You know, they're both sort of posh white guys with nice hair. There were echoes between the two of them. So what's interesting is that that really fed to the feeling of the nation in 2003. So you've got this element that's very much in its own time capsule. Because now, if you're a 15-year-old, because really you shouldn't be watching it any younger, if you're a 15-year-old watching it, you're probably not getting that at all. You, you might understand that Britain and America are, always have a bit of tensions, but you're not quite sure everyone's going on and on about it. So that's something very much of its time. Then you've got the Portuguese stuff, which is sort of referring back to earlier 20th century. And of course, there's the element of love, which we can all agree is something that goes throughout time. There is Shakespearean poetry from 500 years ago that is resonant today as it was then, because love is love. One of the reasons why lesbians are referred to as lesbians is because the Isle of Lesbos, there was sapphic poetry from Sapphos. She was a poet. Now, interestingly, she seemed to have loved both men and women, but a lot of her poetry was about how much she loved women. So because of that, that's how you get the connection to lesbian. So Lesbos, the Isle of Lesbos. That writing is more than 2000 years old. It shows you that love knows no boundaries. It isn't about a time or a place or, or a sex or a gender or anything like that, there is this fundamental human connection. It is important. And like I say, there is a difference between reproduction and people love facts like, oh, you know, when swans mate, they mate for life and humans don't always do that. True, that, that, that is true. But the point is there is this support network that is needed. And I do like the biological argument for it, because if you're just getting down to the basic biology of human reproduction, A man can go around and have literally thousands of children in their lifetime. If they impregnate hundreds of women, they could really spread their seed all over the place. Their DNA is insured for the next generation and then some. Women, however, can't do that. Kind of the maximum amount of children they could probably have in a lifetime is maybe 15, if you're pushing things, okay? So, with that in mind there is a very different emphasis between males and females in terms of the importance of children i'm talking about this purely from a biological point of view so what's to stop the guy from impregnating the female and then just running off and so the the, so what biologists are saying is that's why we have this necessary feeling of love because once i've got that connection to that other person. I'm not going anywhere. And human children are rubbish. If you look at a newborn deer or a newborn calf. They can stand within minutes of being born. It takes a human a year. Another fun fact is children tend to start talking and walking round about a year, but because those two things take up so much of brain power from a little child that they'll do one or the other. They won't start walking and talking at one. They might start a little bit earlier with one or the other. Might, you know, might be 11 months. Well done, little Sammy or whatever so yeah well done them and the reason for that is because we're not quadrupeds we're bipeds the female pelvis is therefore smaller and narrower and therefore the human head when it's coming out of the female is the largest part and that is actually the part which undergoes amazing development if you look at the brain of a newborn baby it's smooth where do you get all those kind of wrinkles that's your evolution of your brain, the the continuing improvement of your intellect as you age up, basically. And it even starts rewiring in the teenage years because of all the hormones, hence why you get all the screaming and shouting, which is part of my household at the moment. So the idea of love is not unique to humans, to homo sapiens, but these sort of life bond things, when they happen, they tend to happen in groups of animals where there's a lot of energy invested in the young yeah by contrast octopuses the female will give birth to all these eggs tend to the eggs until they start hatching and because she's constantly tending those eggs she basically dies of malnourishment when the babies are hatched so you only ever get one spawning from one female octopus not the same in the case of, let's say, chimpanzees or indeed humans. So if you like, the animal world has come up with all these different ways to create the next generation and love is absolutely part of that. I just think that's a lovely thing to end on because in the words of the Beatles, all you need is love. Love actually, however, is probably not all you need. Now I'm gonna give you one last fact, one little nugget in a moment. I just want to say before I do that, don't forget, please click subscribe if you haven't done that already. Please give us a review if you can. This all helps to spread the word. And what I keep saying is if you like these, these are really unusual podcasts. A lot of people are not doing it this way. You get history podcasts, you get pop culture podcasts, you get interviews and so on and so forth. I'm the person who sort of smashes this all together. So if you like this, please just tell one other person or post it on your social media, a, a connection to it on Spotify or Podomatic or Apple podcast or whatever wherever you're getting your podcast please spread the word help this channel grow i would really appreciate it the final fact is this kind of ends a trilogy of hugh grant richard curtis associations starting off with you've got four weddings and a funeral then you got notting hill and then you got this one and he plays virtually the same character in in all three of them except what they do for a job This is one of the joys of Bridget Jones's diary, where finally he plays somebody a bit naughty, a bit more grit to him rather than just this foppishness that you get in these three. But anyway, what I wanted to tell you, the the last little fact is, as I said, there are these three movies. Notting Hill is the middle one. I really like that one. Perhaps Four Weddings is the biggest classic there. Notting Hill actually has a place close to my heart because my parents used to have a delicatessen on Portobello Market and i actually got to meet richard curtis when i was working there at the delicatessen at the front of it there was an egg stall so throughout my childhood and teenage years i was on that egg stall in like summer holidays and sometimes helping out on saturdays and half terms and things like that and i got to meet well, the drummer of Transvision Vamp ra- lived just round the corner. Angela Rippon was somebody I managed to serve on multiple occasions. Patsy Kensit used to live round there at a time when I really had a crush on Patsy Kensett, so that was very awkward as a teenage boy because I'd just seen her in Lethal Weapon 2. And all this stuff's going on. So Notting Hill, when if you watch the film, this idea of this of really cosmopolitan place, this weird mixture of the super rich artists and the very, very poor sort of council estates and and immigrant community. It was genuinely like that. However, what Notting Hill demonstrates is it was this marvelous mixing pot, pot of the sort of bohemian and just the the immigrant experience it's it's around that area you get the notting hill carnival for example the largest carnival in the world except for rio so yeah it's it's amazing Uh, and i always love that place but it's a place of its time because as house prices grew up and also not helped by notting hill making it even cooler all the all the properties are basically now it, there was a balance of about 50-50 between poor and wealthy when i was a kid there nowadays it's all wealthy that notting hill experience just doesn't exist anymore so it, again it's kind of a time capsule of an experience in london that just doesn't exist anymore and the last thing i'm going to say is the other thing that makes me smile is my parents shop is in one of the opening shots of that film and a lot of the street traders i used to talk to i know the names of charlie collins for example and some of these other people all now long retired because that kind of fruit and veg element doesn't exist anymore absolutely love that film and i encourage you to check that one out over love actually Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market.